Well, good morning. It is indeed good to be with you as usual, but today is a little different, right? <laughs> it is my honor and my privilege uh, to attempt to fill in for Pastor Proctor, and hopefully I can make an excellent use of our time together. So today we will look at two different passages in contrast to one another. In Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 9, in Matthew chapter 28, and we will hone in on the Great Commission. So please stand together with me as we read the word of the living God. Genesis 4, 1 through 9. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there, and there they will see me. While they were going, 
Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, (laughs) All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you because you answered the call for your brethren. That you took responsibility for your kinsmen. And you call us to join in your mission. To advance your kingdom to the ends of the earth. Help us now to be encouraged. Forgive me of my sin, Lord. Strip me of it. And let only your word be proclaimed here now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings. And round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hands, the wonders wrought. This verse is from a Presbyterian minister named Mount B. Babcock. He was born in 1858 and died in 1901. Well, it's 2022. And is it still our father's world? And before we answer as Reformed Presbyterians, as heady academic Christians, just purely seeking the right answers, let's consider the weight of the question. Let's consider the context. Let us not dismiss it as a mere question that just needs a correct answer so we can tuck it away as another theological dilemma solved. Let us step in and feel the pain, the fear, The anxiety as if we were deep in dealing with the uncertainty of these times. It's 2022. The age of the religious anti-religion. This culture is the byproduct of atheism. A byproduct of reducing all of life to mere materialism. That life is just chance and matter clashing on each other in a random, purposeless, and meaningless world. 
See, they sought that lie out to escape the pressures of living a responsible and virtuous life. And with it, meaning went right out the window. But humanity cannot live without meaning. So now this generation is in search of meaning, but just not in the right place. They're engaging in the occult and spiritual rituals and meditation and prayer to anything and everything except the God of the Bible. A generation that wants all of the benefits of true religion without that pesky guy named Jesus and his word. We are living in an age of war, both hot and cold. A cold war between two worldviews, the progressives that desire to move on from traditional values, and the conservatives, both Christian and non-Christian who desire to preserve those values. But the focus of this Cold War is the question that these two worldviews seek to answer. And at the very bottom of all this conflict that we are going through today is the same question we've asked throughout human history. How should we then live? You might say, well, that's not very unique. Just keep chugging long history. So let me add a unique component that should get your attention. This question is asked in an age of technology and post-modernity. Brothers and sisters, think for a moment about the impact of technology today in comparison to the past in human history. Consider the speed of it, the ease of it, and how it affects the intention, the conflict of that very question. Through technology, humanity has solved many of the problems that made life a lot harder. But see, but within that difficulty, virtue was enforced. See, because without it, you would die. The hard world, the fallen world, and all its external threats would remind us to a degree that we had to be disciplined, that we had to be responsible for one another. And even then... Because of our slavery to sin, we'd fail to develop true virtue. Now imagine a world where we have nice beds, controlled heat, and air conditioning, food already prepared in the grocery store. And on top of that, we've created virtual reality. We've created a faux ubiquity. Fake ubiquity with the internet. We're all connected no matter where we are. It is within this context, within this vigor of technology, that the how should we then live question is asked. See, we've solved all these problems. That enforce an objective reality. Show me why I should bend the knee to this King Jesus Christ in order to live my life around him. Hmm. In terms of hot wars, we have the Russian-Ukrainian war. We are seeing the horrors of war once again, the very real bloodshed and violence we have not seen to this degree in some time. I recently saw a video of a family 
staring out the window as a Russian fighter plane rushed by their house and bombed the house next to them. I could hear a little girl scream in fear. I could feel the despair, the panic, the shock of having death so close. But let's stick close to home. What about the thousands of people who had their businesses suddenly taken away because all of a sudden they were part of an oppressive system that has contributed to systemic racism that has riddled all of the country's institutions. Riots without ceasing. Senseless violence day in and day out. And then on top of that, the lockdowns. Because the most important thing to those in authority is what they deem to be safe. Safe spaces. Safe language. Safe from COVID. Safe from life. It's a completely made up reality of ultimate safety where everyone is an infant needing protection and anybody who challenges that is a predator that needs to be taken down and canceled. Let me ask the question again now. Is it still our father's world? This season in Providence is not just another season of trying times and the ups and downs and Christ's rule over all things. See, there is no such thing as just another season for our God. All things have a particular purpose. And we would do well to not brush it off as such. This season is one that requires your full attention, your full engagement as the people of God precisely because we are the ones entrusted with the answer. If I could summarize all of these things in our age, I'd say we're living in an age of fraud. In an age of virtue signaling. Where idle talk is all there is. Busy bodying. Talking on Facebook. Talking on Twitter. Posting pictures and statuses. That say, look at me, I'm smart. Look at me, I'm living the life. Look at me, I'm pretty. When all there is is pain. It's all lies. Posturing. While the very fabric of what defines our humanity, our image bearing to God... And our relationship with our neighbor has been fractured to the point where we can't define what a woman is. We're not biologists. Brothers and sisters, this is a crisis of virtue. Of true and biblical and holy character. Of a need for deep sacrificial commitment to something greater than the self that can leave a legacy for generations to come. And that is only possible by the believing and pursuing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, there is nothing else that can produce what the world is truly seeking. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. These are the true virtues that our Lord displayed. And they are the virtues that are spirit wrought when the church is engaging in the very mission of God. 
the discipling of the nations. So let us come to the scriptures now. Let's recapture this very known truth, this very old truth in the gospel to address this crisis of virtue. So we might be encouraged to show the world by the power of the gospel what that looks like. Let us revisit Genesis 4, 1 through 9. Now Adam knew Eve and his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am am I my brother's keeper? The first thing we want to take note of in this story is the context of sacrifice. If we know the story of creation and the fall of man into the slavery of sin in Genesis, we can see that the concept of sacrifice takes on a vital role in relationship to God. See, there is a cost to gaining an intimate relationship to God, and the price is the shedding of blood. True justice must fall on man as we are guilty of sin and disobedience. God himself performs the first sacrifice for Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verse 21, as God in his mercy provides animal skins to cover their nakedness. This clothing dynamic is carried out throughout the scriptures as God ultimately clothes us in Christ's righteousness. But staying in Genesis 4, the context of the event of Cain and Abel revolve around sacrifice. Another layer within this context of sacrifice that is also within the satisfaction of God's holy wrath against sin is the worthiness of the thing sacrificed. As redemptive history develops, we see how God favors the use of symbols to convey a particular meaning connected to his work in redemption. We have the Lord's Supper and baptism today. But in the past, before Christ's work, we have an unfolding leading up to Christ's work. Particularly in the ceremonial laws we see later in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system. The animal sacrifice were particular to what was being sacrificed, and it had to be without blemish of the highest and most excellent form to represent a worthiness established by God himself. To offer to God what he holds in high regard. And it will cost man a lot of work. Of course, as a people who have all of Revelation now, We know that it is impossible for a sinful man to offer what truly pleases God and worthy of remission of sins. 
but remaining in the text. The cost of that work will be represented in that sacrifice as the true symbol of what they actually believed about God. Not what they say they believe of the Lord, because talk is cheap. It was what they actually believe that will inevitably show in the work required, in the action taken. And in this case, Cain and Abel are to offer literally that which they both need as sustenance each day, the very food that they eat. And to be frank, things get real when the cost is the food that you need each day. Although this scene is an early stage of our history, yet the substance of what God intends to communicate in this passage remains the same throughout His Word, throughout the history of mankind. Will you truly have the virtue to submit to God and therefore live? Or will you grow bitter and resentful towards God in your rebellion, pretending to have virtue, And die. See that which you sacrifice will communicate your answer to that question. Abel's answer is the former. But as we know later on as communicated in all of scripture. It's only by the grace of God and the promise of Christ. Like all the Old Testament saints were esteemed by God in high regard. It is by God's own choosing. And the sacrifices offered were accepted by the promise of Christ. But yet the focus of this passage remains on man's agency in God's providence. It remains on his responsibility to develop the virtues that our God holds in high regard. Namely, the fruits of the Spirit. As a result of submitting to God and his word as the highest value. That is the final inner layer of this context of the passage. The focus... Is not on Abel's sacrifice, but Cain's sacrifice that represents his character, his answer to the question I stated before. Let me say it again. Will you truly have the virtue to submit to God and live? Or will you grow bitter and resentful towards God in your rebellion, pretending to have virtue, pretending to be good, and die? Let's look closer. Verse 3 and 5. Three through five. In the course of time came brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Abel exemplifies a man in submission to God. He knows and acts like a man who does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Lord. He knows that the Lord is the one who gives and takes away. So he humbles himself and demonstrates to God his recognition of his limitations, his dependence upon the grace of the Lord. He is grateful for his place and desires to remain under the authority of the Lord as he offers the very best, the firstborn and their fat portions. Abel's aim is to please God. And a byproduct of that aim, it will shine a light on others who are living in darkness. And it will not be taken lightly. 
Cain, on the other hand, inevitably offers what he believes to be his best. It is not actually the best. It is what he believes to be the best. See, his reaction to God's judgment confirms that. As sinners, we always deceive ourselves in believing we are doing our best. Yet it is God who judges. And it is often the case, brothers and sisters, that he is pleased, when he is pleased, he blesses. If he's not, he takes away. It is important to understand this. Because as sinners, we are prone to be pathological liars. Not only to others, but to ourselves. And that's what feeds our natural victimhood mentality. A feeling of being wronged. When in reality, it is us who are wrong. See, Cain honestly believed he was doing his best. Abel's sacrifice shows Cain that he was actually lying to himself. And the Lord ratifies that reality, yet Cain, instead of recognizing his shortcomings and repenting of this, what does he do? He doubles down on his delusional feelings of injustice. He becomes angry and his face falls. In other words, he feels like he's being abused by God and his own brother. He believes his rebellion is virtue. And his insubordination is a heroic attempt to independence and glory. Notice verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? See, the Lord doesn't approve of any of Cain's feelings. Nor thoughts of supposed injustice. He asked him, Why is he angry? Like in the garden, the Lord knows why, as he knew all the answers when he was asking Adam after the fall. That's not the point. God is asking him because Cain, like the rest of us, have a deep character issue that must be teased out and must be laid out for display. So when the fullness of time comes, Christ lays out in sharp contrast what true virtue exemplifies. So the Lord is patient. And he asks questions. So why are you feeling like this, Cain? Why are you so deep into your sinful feelings? Then the Lord points out to objective reality in verse 7. What does he say? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desires contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Brothers and sisters, By God's grace and design, we live in a cause and effect world. The Lord makes things pretty easy to understand. If you do well, good things tend to happen. If you're mediocre and lie to yourself about it, sin is always and is already pouncing on you violently. Sin is a vile and evil thing. doesn't care for you. And it will use your selfish care for yourself As the snare upon which it will devour your very soul and take you proudly into the depths of hell. The Lord is telling Cain, these are the rules of the game of life. I made it. You don't get to reinvent the game. If you play by the rules and be excellent, you win. If you don't, you will lose. Sin will fool you to think your rebellion is virtue. And all that brings is death. If you don't rule over it, it will rule over you. 
Cain did not rule over his sin. And sin is never satisfied. It never stops. It will keep feeding your victimhood mentality. It will isolate you from the church. It will brainwash you to think you're a hero that is being oppressed by a tyrannical God. See, Cain's sin had so deranged his view of reality in his pursuit of fake justice, he kills his own brother. Verse 8 through 9. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, then killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is is Abel your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) See, Cain is liberated from the oppression of God's reality. And he abdicates his responsibility from his brother. In his lie, he comes up with this radical individualist perspective. To Cain and to you and to me, to all sinners, we are our own worlds. We live for ourselves. And whoever dares to knock on our door and intrude into our carefully carved out routine to interrupt it, we can't help but feel bothered. How many times have we said the same line in our hearts? Am I my brother's keeper? What are you doing here? I'm not responsible for you. That response from Cain really gets at the bottom of our depravity, our sinful condition, our selfishness, our deranged view of reality apart from the revelation from the one true God of the scriptures. See, left in our sin, there is no hope in us. Will God have mercy on us? Will there be an older brother who does accept the responsibility of his kinsman? As we exit out of this passage with these questions in mind, let us fly over redemptive history with a bird's eye view. Was Israel any better than Cain? We have been exploring the book of Exodus so far. And what do we see? All we see is a people who are chosen by a lofty God who displays his infinite power and wonder that promises to be with them and give them a land flowing with milk and honey, pillar by day, a cloud by night, splitting of the seas, manna from the heavens. What's the people's response? At best, a reactionary repentance in the presence of such power. Yet afterwards... They will go back to the same self-indulgent grumbling that misinterprets reality. The derangement is so sickening, they preferred the slavery of Egypt over the care of the Most High God. And if you're sitting there thinking that somehow you're better than they are, (laughs) this is us every single time we sin. Brothers and sisters, the issue has never been about God's power. Many think that God and the enemy are somehow in a power match for the souls of mankind. No. (laughs) This is the creator of all things. This is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. No, this is not about power. This is about ethics. This is about God keeping his word. This is about covenant keeping faithfulness. This is about virtue. This our God, he must descend from the heavens. See, man is trapped in the snare of Satan's ingratitude. He cannot do anything good, nor desires to do so. Man must suffer God's holy wrath for his disobedience. Yet God elects to redeem for himself a people of every tribe, tongue, and nature, and nation. And he does so as a suffering servant. The book of Matthew is known for its highlights of the Old Testament messianic fulfillment. The Old Testament promises a king that will come to save his people from their sins. The book of Isaiah tells us that the government will rest upon his shoulders. Isaiah 9.6 Psalm chapter 2 tells us that the reign of the Lord's anointed, his possession of the nations, and his breaking them with a rod of iron. The book of Daniel tells us of this everlasting dominion given to the Son of Man. Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we see in the Old Testament an expectation that is clear. A king who will have dominion over all things. See, Israel's history of covenant breaking, being oppressed by tyrants, Longs for a king who would be faithful in submitting and obeying the Lord so that they may prosper. So it's natural to think that this king will come primarily with the use of power. In fact, the word is clear that he does have power. (laughs) But the problem we have is deeper. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law... We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's Paul. So God, to glorify himself in a display of all of his attributes, his character, his power and glory, he decrees a redemptive plan in saving man to restore creation in the work of his son. That is then applied by his spirit. Jesus takes on the form of a suffering servant to represent the people the Father loved since before time began and offers His own life as payment and punishment for our sin. And by His resurrection, He is making all things new. See, Matthew's Gospel goes through the life of our King. He goes through his perfect obedience in relation to all the old promises of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus is greater than the Levitical priests. He is greater than David. He is greater than Moses. He has come to save to the uttermost all those that have been given to him. 
So the gospel of Matthew records our Lord's life in submission to his father. The fulfilling of the law in every aspect. His coming inaugurates the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so he heals the sick and the blind. He raises the dead. And he teaches the principles of the kingdom with perfect and holy virtue. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And so our Lord comes to His final work. We land now, Matthew chapter 28. We have arrived at the great climax of redemptive history, the great place of sacrifice. The Lord offers Himself in the place of wrath for sinners. Christ had finished his work on the cross on the sixth day as creation was made in six days. Christ is laid in the tomb on the seventh day because it is finished. As our God had rested on the seventh day, but on Sunday, something happened. In verse 1 of Matthew chapter 28, 1 through 10, we are told that toward the dawn of the first day of the week, There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Brothers and sisters, a new creation has just begun. At the dawn of the first day was the dawn of the new day where Christ is firstborn of all creation, the resurrected king over all things. And after Christ's ascension to the right hand of the father, the apostles go to make known the fact that Christ is now king. Acts 13, verse 32 through 33 says, We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, He's had fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Psalm 2 is all about Christ. It's about Christ inheriting the nations. Psalm 2, 8 through 9. Ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 110.1, the most quoted verse in the New Testament. What does it say? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Beloved, this is all unfolding right here in Matthew 28. The work of Christ is accepted. And he receives the heavenly approval with an angel breaking the seal of the tomb. See, the Lord could have just broken free. Reminiscent of a cheesy Marvel movie. And a great display of power. But no. He doesn't break out of anything. He doesn't need to break out of anything. He is worthy 
of the heavenly host to come and open the tomb. As his perfect work earns him the great honor and ceremony. Verses 11 through 15. Basically lays out the natural Cain-like character we've already seen since the fall. And in Genesis chapter 4. The guards go to the chief priests and tell them what happened. This Christ is the risen Christ. And so the response is, let's ignore reality. Let's bribe them. To get them to tell a lie. And pretend that the supernatural event. That this King Jesus. He's not really King. That reality is too hard. His perfect sacrifice. Shines too much of a light in this darkness. And it's unbearable. It means that they have to change. It means that their entire life was wrong. They just crucified the king they knew was coming. When the failure is this massive. We are all tempted to turn a blind eye, brothers and sisters, to deny reality. To take the victim road and pretend that we were ignorant. We will take any road available besides taking responsibility for our sin and repent. To go back to Genesis 4. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Yet what is the reality that we see throughout scripture? Without supernatural intervention, without the Most High God coming down to us, without the work of Christ being imputed to us by the Spirit, you cannot and will not rule over your sin. So what? So things must be remade. Things must be renewed. And so now we come to the very crux of Matthew 28, His Great Commission. Verses 16 through 18. Then the eleven eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. (laughs) The Lord is showing his disciples that everything he said he was going to do, he did. That the promise that God Made to Abraham. That covenant promise. That covenant faithfulness to Abraham. To Isaac. To Jacob. Of redeeming a people. Of making descendants as numerous as the stars. Is and will be fulfilled. By the victory of Christ on the cross. Yet still some doubted. As you and I doubt. Every single time we sin. What is Jesus' response to doubt? As with all of redemptive history. Our king, he shows patience. He shows love. He shows self-control. And his response is definitive with authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, in this kingly statement, our Lord reminds us that he has fulfilled the very prayer he has taught us to pray. A Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How was that name hallowed throughout the land? By his kingdom coming to us. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So the Lord Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven to us. And his dominion is both on earth and in heaven. As Christians, Jesus is teaching us that our primary concern is that the nations may know 
this holy, triune God by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by this authority, by this crushing of the head of the serpent, by this remaking all things new, a commission is given to us. When our God created all things, he planted man in the garden. He gave us the first commission, Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the Messiah, the promised king, gives us a new commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Lord commands us to disciple the nations. But what is discipleship? Some think that the application of the commissions, primarily through handing out tracts, by evangelizing, by podcasts, books, blogs. No, those are not equal to discipleship. Those are good tools to open or to add to the arena of discipleship. But it is not the ordinary way that this occurs. Brothers and sisters, discipleship is training. It's instruction. It's a life teaching that is perfectly exemplified by our Lord with his disciples and his ministry. It is the taking on the responsibility of another life as Christ displayed through his ministry. The perfect answer to Cain's question. And what was that? Am I my brother's keeper? See, our elder brother, he responded with a resounding yes. And so now we are being remade into the image of Christ and we answer with a resounding yes. When we build our households well and when we build God's household well, when we train them up, not only in the theory of Christianity, but in the application of our faith, that they may see both in word and in deed that we do bend the knee to Christ, that our life bears the marks of a people who love his law, by way of the gospel, that they may see our daily dying to ourselves so that Christ is magnified in every single ordinary thing we do. The other clear way we see in Scripture is in discipling new believers. It's training up adopted sons and daughters of God who are not born in your household, they are born in God's household. Any Christian who has matured in his understanding and application of God's word, can train up other believers, can take responsibility for others in their growth. See, because our faith is holistically parental, where everyone can take on the responsibility of another, and in doing so, develop the virtues of the Spirit. But how do we get to get disciples? Most think that the only required way is being good at evangelism. And while that is an ordinary way, and the scriptures does call us to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. But let me broaden that very quickly. Knowing from just knowing the theory of Christianity. By the work of Christ, the apostle Peter says we are a royal priesthood. Paul calls us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. See, as priests who have access to God through Christ... When we live our lives excellently, displaying the fruits of the Spirit in every position that the Lord has placed us, in our jobs, in our homes, with our friends, when we show what true love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, meekness, self-control looks like. We offer sacrifices to our Lord as we die to our sin and show others who are watching what a Christian looks and acts like. We put ourselves in the position of gaining disciples. We are living in times ripe with people longing to see what true virtue looks like, brothers and sisters. And we are the people responsible for showing what that looks like by the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, it is 2022. And without a shadow of a doubt, this is our Father's world. It was purchased by the perfect work of our virtuous Christ. And he has given us the command to make him known in every area of life. Right where we stand in the community we are in. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you. Because you took responsibility for us. You loved us first. You came for us. You washed us of our sin. You are washing us of our sin. You are making all things new. Lord, I pray that we can be a community that can show, that can continue to show what that looks like to a world each day that is craving what life and legacy truly looks like and means. We thank you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.